If you'll remain standing as we share in God's good word together, uh, we are at a, a pivot point um, in our sermon series. Uh, this is, if, if we were in a traditional church, uh, we're go- actually going through the lectionary, which are the readings for all the churches around the world from the time of Jesus' beginning ministry. Next week will be Palm Sunday. The week after that will be Easter. And so now we're at the last, uh, what you might consider the first full Sunday of Lent, thus the purple. And uh, then we're going to move to Palm Sunday next week uh, and into Holy Week. So let's share in God's good word together. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Being little is not such a bad thing. Yes, it is. No, it's not. It's two. Is not. Is not. Is not. Is not. Is not. Oh, a seat. I need. I need a seat. Uh. <laughs> oh. uh, here. Here. Pretend. Pretend that that's a seat. It's a rock. Oh, I know it's a rock. I know. But let's just pretend for a minute that it's a seat. All right. We'll just use our imaginations. Now, now, do you see our tree? Everything that made that giant tree is already contained inside this tiny little seed. All it needs is some time, a little bit of sunshine and rain, and voila! This rock will be a tree. Seed to tree. You've got to work with me here, all right? Okay. You might not feel like you can do much now, but that's just because, well, you're not a tree yet. You just have to give yourself some time. You're still a seed. But it's a rock. I know it's a rock! Don't you think I know a rock when I see a rock? I've spent a lot of time around rocks! You're weird, but I like you. (laughs) Ever feel like that in your Christian life? You're in over your head. There's these seeds and you're going to grow. It's a rock. That's the way it feels like. Sometimes we are in over our head. Uh, We are in our fifth week of our uh, Lent series, Fixer Upper. Uh, And we are moving, as I said, from Jesus' baptism uh, through the feeding of the 5,000, the 4,000, the 7,000, the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. And now Jesus turns towards Jerusalem. He knows that Palm Sunday is before him. He knows the cross is before him. And he's going to start talking about that here in chapter 12. He's going to talk about what he must do, what he's called to do, that we might live, that you and I today might live and have New life, life abundant, life anew. So if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And um, let's look at those together. Over the last number of weeks, uh, just the remodel so far. Uh, first of all, I want you to know uh, with all that I am that a transformed life is available to you. Will you say that with me? A transformed life is available to you. It is. And many of us over time, uh, particularly if we've been in church a long time, we can begin to doubt this or to question this or to give up on this. That because there's still things in our life that we wrestle with, we wonder, is there, can it happen? Does God really have something to offer me? To, can this really change? And the answer is yes, absolutely it can. Number two is the hard part. That that transformation requires suffering, rejection, and death. It just does. And this, I think, is why most of us uh, remain not transformed. Because we don't like these. Anybody here like, oh yeah, bring me some suffering. Well, no, of course not. 
But if you've been a part of anything great in your life, you know that it requires hard work, suffering, rejection of other things in your life so that you can be focused on this thing and death to certain things, certain relationships, certain foods, um, certain other activities, your time. If you're going to be transformed, it takes all that you are and not just you, but the community around you. It's something we do together. And again, in a very individualistic Western society today, these are hard concepts. When Jesus talked about transformation, he always talked about it in a group, in a group setting. Uh, Have you heard of the 12 disciples? This is how Jesus traveled. This was his life. Woke up, went to bed, um, ate with. The whole deal was not Jesus alone. It was Jesus and the 12. Jesus in community. And this is what transforms the world. Uh, Week three is that a transformed life takes us outside the walls of the church. When Jesus turned over uh, the, the, the coins in the temple, he wasn't just turning over that table. He was turning over the entire system. That, that God was no, lo- no longer just located in the temple, but wherever Jesus was, God was. And today, after the book of Acts chapter 2, wherever the Spirit of God goes, living in you, God goes. So... Of course, we hope and pray and and trust that God is in the temple, in the church, but also wherever you go, God is. God goes. And then last week, uh, we learned that eternal life is actually unending presence of God. Life in the unending presence of God. That's what eternal life is. And that begins now. It was available before we got here. It'll be here after we leave. It'll be here after we die. It was here long before we were born. Eternal life that Jesus talks about is life in the unending presence of God. And it's offered to everyone. And that's good news. It's offered to everyone. Everyone's included. There's no one excluded from this unending presence of God. Now, the question, of course, is are you interested in that? Are you interested in that? And for many of us, it kind of blows our mind that we would be, um, you know, forever and ever in the unending presence of God. Because we forget how good God is. God is. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories about a little one um, who was, was in Catholic school, uh, and she went uh, to one of the nuns, and she said to the nun, she said, this whole thing about God always watching me, it's creeping me out. And it feels like a stalker. You know, I don't, I don't like that. Uh, and the sister said to her, she said, oh, oh, no, honey. It's just that he loves you so much he can't keep his eyes off you. You're his precious child. It's full of love and grace. He, he's not watching for you to mess up. He just, he just loves watching you because you're his. And we, we need to be reminded that that's who God is, that he loves all of his children. Now, if you're like me, there are days that we get this, and there are other days that we completely miss it. We miss it completely. Um, many of you all know that I grew up in a theologian's home. My dad was a pastor for more than 40 years. Uh, his dad before him was a salesman, never really around. And so let's just say that when it came to fixer upper, um, home improvements, uh, this sign, uh, is in reference to me, right? Um, I, I've learned in my life, um, that the less I try to fix around my house, the happier my wife is. Because it, it, it's almost a sure thing that if I get involved, we will call someone else to fix what I tried to fix, and it will be more expensive than had I stayed out of it completely. Sometimes wisdom would dictate that, anyway, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, right? So wisdom would dictate that there are pieces of our lives where it really is smarter to trust someone else, the people that know what they're doing. 
And this is certainly true in the Christian life, that we trust Jesus, we trust the Spirit, because on our own, we are in way, way over our heads. There's really no hope for us to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and move ourselves into the heavens of God. It's not something we can do. It's something that requires the cross, requires the sacrifice of God himself. So, the people that knew this very, very clearly in Jesus' day were the Greeks. You see, and this is so hard for us to remember, that in Jesus' day, Judaism was a national religion, right? To be Jewish was to be saved. To, if you were the, the Exodus story, for example, uh, is the great story of the faith. And you'll notice that God saves the Jews and kills the Egyptians. That's how they understood it. Until Jesus, this was a faith for one particular people. That's how they understood it. That was what was passed on. And Jesus came that it was no longer for one people at one time, but for all people for all time. And we kind of, that kind of just you know, rings to us like, yeah, 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 we know that. But seriously, you've got to stop and chew on that for a while. That the entire religious system, the entire salvation of the world hinges on the person of Jesus and the transformation of that entire system. So in John 12, he writes it like this. There were some Greeks in town who had come up to worship at the feast. They approached Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Can you help us? Now, this piece, Greeks, is important. These are not Greek-speaking Jews. Okay? Um, Andrew and Philip are Greek-speaking Jews. Andrew and Philip are Greek names. But these people that John's referencing, they're non-Jews. They're outside Um, the love of God as they understand it and as the Jews understand it. So Andrew and Philip, these are Greek names, um, lover of horses, um, and um, each name has sort of its own meaning. Um, Philip is lover of horses. And um, so here's the thing, and maybe you've been there. You're in a group. That group is awesome and great, and there are people outside of your group who want to be in your group, and they want to talk to the leader of your group. What do you do? Because depending on how it goes, you might be out of the group. Right? Now, this, is, this is no small thing. They had a choice to make. And, and the same choice that you and I have to make. What do we do with outsiders who want to see Jesus? It's a really important question. What do we do? What do we do? Well, let's look at what Philip and Andrew did. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip go together and they tell Jesus. Now, this is awesome. That's really instructive, friends. Because... If you have somebody that you think might want to meet Jesus, what's the first thing you should do? Go talk to Jesus about them. Right? It's more important that we talk to Jesus about someone and whether they're ready to meet him than we talk to them about Jesus. We always want to talk to Jesus first about someone before we talk to someone about Jesus. Amen? It's important because people hate it when you start talking to them about Jesus without referring to Jesus first. Because Jesus might tell you they're not quite ready. You might want to barbecue first. You might want to take them to lunch. Um, you know, you might want to ask for their forgiveness because you were really rude and terrible to them last week. And I don't want my name associated with your bad behavior quite yet. Right? You see what I'm saying? You need to make sure that you're in right relationship with someone and that you're talking to Jesus about them before you talk to them about Jesus. That's what Philip and Andrew did. They, they go to Jesus and they say, hey, 
What about these folks? And Jesus answers, time's up. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this is a name that Jesus uses for himself. Son of Man, to be glorified means to be lifted up, to put on the cross and to die. So here's the thing that's real easy for us to miss. If these outsiders are to be included, Jesus must die. There's no hope for the Greeks otherwise. Because the religious system of the day excludes them. And it's not until Jesus' death and resurrection that they will be included. You see how this works. So in order for these people to come in, Jesus has to die. And so Jesus answers with this metaphor about himself. He says, listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, a single grain, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. This is Jesus talking about himself, that he is that grain, that he must die for the community of faith, for us to exist. If Jesus doesn't die, we're not here today, 2,000 years later. So Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. Isn't that true? If you had a grain of wheat um, and it's on your kitchen counter, you crush it up and eat it, that's it. That's the end of it. But if you plant it, only God knows what's going to happen. So when Jesus says a, a single grain, that's a solitary life, his one life, his life. Of course, the corollary is it could be your life too. And so let's, let's talk about apples for a second. We, I mean, I, I came from wheat harvest. Some of you did. Uh, but a lot of folks, I talked to some city folks about this, and they just looked at me like I was crazy, like, what? So let's talk apples for a second. Here's an apple. What happens if you eat the apple? Keeps the doctor away. That's it. Right? Which is good. Apples are good. But what do you do if you plant the seeds of an apple? Only God knows that. Only God knows that. So, in John 12, Jesus says this. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life, you hold on to your seeds just as it destroys that life. That's the end of it. But if you let it go in trust, in love, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real, and eternal. And what does eternal mean? Life in the unending presence of God. If you trust God. With your life, with your seed. And then Jesus says, but if it dies, if I die, if I go to the cross, it bears much fruit, much fruit, not just an apple, much fruit. And this bearing much fruit that Jesus says is Jesus' metaphor for the life of the community of faith. And wow, did he get it right. There are more than 2 billion Christians on the planet today from that single solitary life. And there were 2 billion Christians on the planet before that. And really since the time of Jesus, certainly since the time of Constantine, Christianity has been either the primary religion or one of the the three top religions uh, in terms of numbers for the last 2,000 years. About a third of the population is Christian. That's a lot of fruit. That's what Jesus is saying. That when he buries his life, the community comes up and bears his name and changes the world. So the salvation power of Jesus' death resides not just in that location, but in the community of the gathered Easter people of which you are a part. You are the fruit that Jesus is talking about. Bearing much fruit, the community of faith rising up from the death and the burial of that one single solitary life. That single solitary 
grain. That's what Jesus is saying. And in that, Jesus is promising us something, and he's also calling us to something today. So he's talking about himself, but then he goes on and tells us what we're to do with that. He says, if any of you want to serve me, then follow me. Then you'll be where I am, ready to serve at a moment's notice. Serving people, particularly non-Christians, that's our role. To serve people that don't yet know Jesus. To love them, to care for them, to serve them, to bless them. Period. It's up to Jesus whether or not they ever come to faith. Not us. We're to love and serve and follow Jesus. That's what we do. And Jesus says it like this. Those who lose their life, love their life, they lose it. Now, what does he mean by this? What is it to love your life? What is it to love your spouse? What's to put them first? Right? It's to put them first in that order. So to love or put first one's life is the opposite of Jesus' actions. Right? And this is a temptation for all of us. We love our life. We, we, we want to have a good, easy, pleasurable life. Right? I mean, any of you all sign up like, man, I sure wish my life was harder this week. I mean, that, that's not normally what I hear. I hear, man, I'm a little tired. I could use a massage or a lazy boy or a bigger screen TV because my eyes are going bad or whatever it is. Right? I mean, we, we really struggle with this one. To love our life is to put our life first. And that's the opposite of what Jesus did. Jesus laid down his life. And so Jesus goes there. He says, and those who hate their life, which means put theirs below his and others, will keep it for eternal life. When we allow God to be in our life first, then we are living in the unending presence of God, which is the whole point of the Christian life, friends. Just as Jesus was obedient to the Father, we are obedient to Jesus, who is obedient to the Father. We're obedient to the Spirit as the Spirit moves us, who's obedient to Jesus, who is obedient to the Father. So to hate one's life today is to declare allegiance to Jesus. When we say, okay, God, I can't, but you can. Lead me, show me, guide me. Then we go wherever that is, and that is to live for Jesus. And there's a promise with this, friends. It's not that we just do this. It's not a sad sack sort of life. It's a, it's a life full of hope. A life where we bury things and trust that God will raise them up. And if there's ever a good time to be preaching about this, it's now because all sorts of things are coming up. Right? I mean, most of us are on allergy medicine. God's doing so much coming up <laughs> these days. Right? So Jesus says this, The Father will honor and reward anyone who serves me. Say that with me. The Father will honor and reward anyone who serves me. That's what Jesus says about you. This is great news, friends. All you have to do is take a step, just a tiny step. And whatever you do in Jesus' name, we trust that God will raise something up and he will honor and reward you. Honor and reward you. Now, this is where we struggle because we're impatient, aren't we? We're impatient. I watch you people drive. Right? Right? We, we, we do it all the time. I know you love red lights. I know you just love, you know, pulling up behind somebody who's on their phone at a red light. It turns green and they're playing Angry Birds or whatever. And you think to yourself, wow, this is a nice break in my day. No, that's not who we are. You see, God will honor your sacrifice, but we don't know how and we don't know when. But we do know God is faithful. 
This is the Christian life. Right? God will honor and reward your sacrifice. God will honor and reward your faithfulness. God will honor and reward you. And it might happen tomorrow. And it might happen after you're dead. We don't know. We don't know. And sometimes in my life, uh, I'll tell you my experience, and that is often when you first come to know Jesus, when you first baptized, when you first say yes, oftentimes that honor and reward comes quickly. It comes quickly. Because it's God's way, it's the Spirit's way of saying, yes, you're getting it. You see this? This is how it works. Way to go. And then for me, I was about 32, 33 And all of that stopped. And it stopped for a long time. It stopped for between six months and a year in 2005 before we were in that building. It's called the dark night of the soul. Now, I love God and God loved me, but we weren't talking much other than me. Like, hey, are you up there? Maybe maybe some of you experienced this. I was so disturbed by this that I went to one of my seminary professors and I was like, hey, what, what is going on? And um, it was so bad that I was so excited to meet this professor again that I hadn't seen in years um, that I went all the way down to Dallas. I drove down to Dallas. I went up to his office. Um, and as these seasons go, he wasn't there. His door was locked. He was gone for the day. He had a family emergency. I couldn't even see the thing that I had held out hope for. Maybe some of you have been there. So I just wrote him a note, uh, you know, to my professor, my doctor, you know, I really trust you and da, 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 da. And uh, he wrote me a note back. I, uh, he emailed me and he was like, you know, dear John Mark, um, for those of us who walked with the Lord a long time, it happens to all of us. Um, there's, there's, you know, thousands of Christians have gone before that, that get to this dark night. So what the Lord is doing is maturing you. He's getting you ready. He's deepening you because God, what God wants is your obedience without the treats. He wants you to follow him without the immediate gratification, without the immediate reward. He's deepening you. He's growing you. And he's getting you ready for something important, something good, something bigger that you won't be able to handle if you need Jesus to hop every 24 hours to keep you okay. And he gave me a book about Father Arseny and the hundreds of thousands of Christians that were killed in Russia, and a priest that spent the majority of his life in a concentration camp, and his work and his witness to the people who were being gassed and killed all day. It didn't take me very many chapters to go, I'm okay in Edmond suburbia. It's all right. I'm, I'm good. And I can't tell you how strong of a witness that was where there are seasons, friends, and if you are in the dark night of the soul, if you are in a season where God's not talking to you all the time, Know that he may be doing something really important with you. I'm happy to talk to you about it. I've been through it myself. God will honor your sacrifice. He will reward you. We don't know how. We don't know when. But we do know God is faithful. Would you say God is faithful? God is faithful. Yes, of course God is faithful. So let me ask you this question. How many apples are in a seed? One apple in a seed? If you plant that seed, how many apples? Maybe that? Maybe an orchard? I don't know how many each of those trees in that orchard, how many apples are in them. But that's what God can see. That's what God does. 
But somebody has to be faithful to plant that first seed. Right? You have to be willing to die. You have to put it all on the line. You have to say, I can't, but you can. You have to bury what you have. When I was a little boy, um, my mom would read this book to me. Uh, Some of you know it. Many of you do not. Um, I used to read it to my boys. It goes like this. A little boy planted a carrot seed. We're, moving, we're switching metaphors from apples to carrots. It's okay. <laughs> Carrot orchards are hard to find on Google. And his mother said, I'm afraid it won't come up. And his father said, I love the pipe. I'm afraid it won't come up. And his big brothers do. He said, it won't come up. And every day the little boy pulled up the weeds around the seed and sprinkled the ground with water. Uh, But nothing came up. Many of you all have been in that season. I've been in that season. And nothing came up. Everyone kept saying it would not come up. But still, he pulled up the weeds around it every day, sprinkled the ground with water. And then one day, what happened? A carrot came up. Just as the little boy had known it would. That's a big carrot. In a few moments, uh, John and Hayden are going to come over and they're going to be baptized. About 18 years ago now, Tim and Mickey came to church over at Cheyenne Middle School. The seed. And say, thank you for coming. A few years later, about six, seven years later, Mandy came over. Greg, the kids. Mom and dad would come by every once in a while, sometimes see you for Easter. Yeah, you know, family. But today, we're going to trust Jesus that as John and Hayden are buried in one life, they're going to come up and we're going to have some carrots. Just as the Lord knew it would be all along. But, of course, our temptation is to bury half of the seed in the dirt and half above the ground. Isn't it? Like, how am I going to breathe if I'm underground? I'm kind of claustrophobic. I I need, I'm going to bury half of my life. I mean, mean, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give 5%. I'm going to do this. I'm going to serve. I'm going to go to church once a month. I'm going to do these things. And and I'm going to trust that it's going to be great. And I'm going to have half of my life kind of the way I want it and half at the church, half for Jesus. Any of y'all plant seeds half above and half below? How's that working? you have any fruit? Now, after church, I know some of you say, like, that's how you plant irises. I know this. I'm not talking irises. Stay with the metaphors. I have a Lenten discipline, which is, you know, Ash Wednesday to Easter, but my Lenten discipline happens in October, November, and December. It's daffodils. This is my Lenten discipline. These are daffodil bulbs, um, and, and they're on top of the ground there. If I were to leave them like that, what would happen? My pocket gophers would take them is what would happen. They would just eat them and go. Or the birds. Or they would just rot. If you want a daffodil to come up, what do you have to do? You have to bury it. Friends, you must bury your life in Christ to find it. There's no other way. You must bury your life. 
You have to say, God, do something with this. I'm going to bury it, all of it, not part of it, not half of it, not three-quarters of it, all the way in. And when you do, you trust and you hope that God will do something with it. Not in January, not in early February, but certainly by this time in March, some of these folks are up and out and wonderful. It's every year in the hope of the resurrection. I bury daffodil bulbs and I trust God with the results. It's very comforting to me. I used to plant tulips, but that's dumb in Oklahoma. They go really quick. These things fly off and they don't come back. So, enough with the metaphors. How do we do this? How do we practice dying to self? How do, how do we actually bury ourselves? Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? That Father saved me from this hour? Like, Jesus didn't want to do this. We know this. No, Jesus says, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do with me what you will. Then a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I will. I will. Now, the hard part is, of course, in the early days in the burial. Some of you, I'm trying to make this make sense to some of us. In our life, uh, at our family, we would lose our life from about August to November 1st. November 1st was the weekend that the OBA big marching contest would be. And in August, our boys would get... Um, sheet music for the show that they were going to practice. They would show up at the, at the school at like 6.30 in the morning. They would go to school all day. They would drive back to school um, after school, and they would practice till 8 o'clock at night. In the summer, they would practice and practice and practice and practice till dark. They would go to contests. They would get home at 2 in the morning. Chantel would have to go pick them up. It was great. Thank you. And, but in August, in August, you, we would hear this. From the trombone line, John Mark was a trombonist, I was a trombonist, and the, and the marching music for trombones is amazing. I mean, it sounds like this. All of it. <laughs> trombones get no love. I mean, every once in a while, you might have like three measures. Of, of something really fun and cool. But by the most part, you know, the bass instruments, we're filled, we're strong. And, and it's like, man, this is going to stink. This is going to be a terrible show. When you hear the music that the trombones and the tubas and the baritones are playing, you're like, really? And so then everybody hits the field. Um, and they just, they start. And, and they start marching. And they're sunburned. And they don't even have their instruments. They're so bad. I mean, they're just marching around trying to find their spot. I watched... Uh, the first year our boys marched, they spent like an hour just going, step. Like, no, 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 not everybody together. Step. In, in 100 degree heat on the parking lot at Edmond North, they're just doing it. And by the middle of the summer, they're starting to pick it up. They're starting to have a sense of what the director saw all along. The people who put the show together. And all they heard is bump, bum, bump, bum. But together, in community, something bigger starting to happen that no individual could see on their own. And by the time you get to contest, it's starting to come together month after month after month, hour after hour after hour. So you move from the field of practice, which is what we do in church, by the way, and you go to the real thing.
If you're a band nerd, you're like, yes! But if you're like me, you're just like, bum, bum. You see what God can do with your bum, bum? You can't see it. You can't hear it. Your parents can't hear it. Your dog howling at you from the other room can't hear it. But somebody knows what that's going to look like. We don't know when. We don't know how. But the reward and the honor is coming at the right time. Make sense? Those of you in sports, you could do the same analogy. Those of you who work on teams, you know what I'm talking about. So your action steps this week, friends. How do, how do we actually trust God? How do we take a little step? How do we work on the music or take the first step in August? Do no work for 24 hours, friends. Seriously, it's called Sabbath. It's been around for thousands of years. Probably the most overlooked and flagrantly dismissed um, 10th commandment rule that we have. You don't know that God will take care of you until you allow God to take care of you. This is how you do it. So you look at your watch and you say, for those of you on spring break, okay, I'm not going to check email. I'm not going to do text messages. I'm going to do nothing until 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. I know some of you have to go to work, go to work. But at some point, friends, God says, if you want to trust me, if you want to learn how to do this, you've got to have a 24-hour period every Seven days where you trust me. You're doing no work. And trust me, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of it. And you can't really know this until you start doing that. It's a, it's a baby step. The other thing you can do is admit you're in over your head. This is what it means for Jesus to be your Savior. That's what Savior means. The one that saves you. But you can't do this on your own. And then finally, uh, if this seems all really way too big... The place that you start, the way you do this work in the August and July or the planting in October, whatever metaphor you want to look at, is you attend to the basics of the faith and trust God with the results. You can do this with prayer. You can do this with Sabbath. You can do this with Bible study. You can do this with your tithe. In the same way that you don't know God will take care of your finances until you give part to him, same way with your time. Time and money are two big ones. Those are two good places to start. And then as you do that, other things will become clear. You're like, wow, God does take care of me. But you have to plant it first. Amen? Amen.